Paul's going to come and speak to us uh, in a moment after our Bible reading. Our Bible reading is in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 1. And we're going to read a fairly long reading through to verse 31. Let's be attentive to the word of God. We're going to read about Peter and John who were arrested for doing what we do. For preaching the gospel, proclaiming Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. It came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, or by what name, have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, 
Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Eva Hart was but to ever remember the fateful night, April 15th, 1912. And the reason was she was one of the passengers on board the infamous Titanic ship, of course, that plunged 12,000 feet to the floor of the Atlantic Ocean after striking an iceberg that ripped a 300-foot uh, gash in its side. This is what she said, one of her uh, descriptions. She said, I saw all the horror of its sinking, and I heard even more dreadful the cries of drowning people. Of course, we know the great tragedy of that uh, disaster was that uh, there were only about enough lifeboats for half the crew and passengers. And even greater was the tragedy that many of those lifeboats that were left the stricken ship only half full. In fact, although 20 lifeboats and rafts were launched, many of them were only partly filled. And so most of the passengers ended up struggling in the icy waters while the lifeboats rowed away to a safe distance. Apparently one lifeboat, lifeboat number 14, did row back to the sea. And alone it chased the cries in the darkness of those that were drowning in the water. But incredibly, many of the other lifeboats that were only half full never went back to try and rescue any more drowning people. They stayed at a safe distance. Why? Well, probably because they feared the crush. They feared that their boat might be swamped with people, and so they stayed out as they did. Now, Jesus Christ said that his mission was to come and seek and save the lost. And he commanded his disciples to do the same, didn't he? He said, in the same way that I have sent you, uh, the Father sent me, I am sending you. So Christ commissioned his disciples and every other believer to be involved in this great work of rescuing the perishing. And I'm well aware that's a very old-fashioned phrase these days. You know, it's really gone out of, of uh, modern speech, certainly Christian circles. But I want to say to you, however you put it, that is the priority, or should be the priority, for every single one of us who are Christians tonight. We've been sent on a rescue mission by the rescue of Christ. And the challenge is this. Are we going to have the courage, the boldness, to, as it were, row our lifeboats back amongst those people who are lost in perishing? I think we face the great obstacle those people faced as the Titanic was sinking, and that obstacle is fear. We really don't want our boats to be robbed, do we? No. We don't want our sort of feet to get wet, or, or our peace to be disturbed, and so often, if I'm honest, the thing that holds
calls me back more than anything else in witnessing his fear. We can talk till the cows come home about this technique and that technique. And don't misunderstand me, it's good to, to, to sharpen your edge and, and to learn new approaches. But the bottom line is, are we actually going to do anything? Are we actually going to step out in faith and actually begin to speak for our Lord? You know how it is done in the programs ended in the afternoon. Uh, you know, we sung our last song and uh, we take the two kids back to their parents. And you look around at what you see. You see lots of groups of families, don't you? And your heart begins to pound and your heart begins to get a bit sweaty. You know what you're meant to do. You've got that newspaper in your hand. And you think, there I go up to those families. And interrupt their afternoon. And talk to them about the victory. And ultimately about the Lord. Do you feel nervous? When the afternoon program comes to an end at that time, contacting, I tell you what, after 25 years, 6 years, I still feel nervous. I'm still looking around thinking, well, somebody else will go, or... Or, oh, somebody else has just gone to bed, so... Or, are there any newspapers left? Perhaps there are. Oh, look, there's 300. Never mind. But, uh, you know, we can, we can think of all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't do it. Or maybe it's the open air. And um, you're dead worried for a start that you're going to get called on the box. Uh, that's bad enough. But then to actually initiate a conversation with somebody. And again, it's easy to think what somebody else will do. Or maybe we don't even bother going to the open air at all back home when there's an open air on. Let's be honest, many of us are cowards, aren't we? Anybody put their hand up to be the coward? I would, and I honestly, I really would. And I suspect, if we're honest, that, that most of us here really struggle in this area. And so I want us to look at chapter 4 of Acts, because I think in it we find some of the secret of the effectiveness of the early church. And it seems to me that one of the key things that marked the witness of the early church was one of the things that so often we lack. And that is a holy boldness to witness. And it comes out so powerfully in this passage, doesn't it? Here we've got Peter and John. They're standing, they're having an open air meeting. That's an impromptu one. They hadn't planned it. But there's a fantastic crowd listening. There's been the healing uh, outside the, the temple, the temple gate. And now a crowd has gathered. And, and so Peter seizes the moment, doesn't he? He seizes the opportunity and begins to have an open air meeting. That's all it was. And he preaches, and there's this great crowd listening, and then there's a sort of disturbance in the back of the crowd, and there's some men in, 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 in uniform, pushing their way to the front. And uh, no, it's not the beach inspector, uh, but actually it's the temple guard. And they really don't like what's going on, and they arrest Peter, and they arrest uh, John. And they take them to the local prison, and they slap them in irons, and they throw them into the jail. And the following day, they're dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. This was the highest court of law in, in, in the Jewish, in Jewish society. And uh, they were very, very powerful. Remember, it's the same council that planned and plotted the death of the Lord just a few weeks previous. And yet Peter stands up, doesn't he, and boldly again preaches the gospel. seizes the opportunity to speak for Christ. And exactly... That he does exactly that. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's so exciting to read the book of Acts. You see it again and again, don't you? And we ask ourselves, why were they like that? And why am I so often not like that? And how can I be like that? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Do you have that question? 
all going to face opposition. Evangelism is not easy, is it? It's not. Yet there are many powerful servants in Acts, and we can read of many people being converted, but let's not read with kind of a selective vision, because there's equally many, many powerful instances of persecution. And I suspect more and more in our country, this is going to become an issue for us. More and more, I think we're going to face the same backlash that the early church very soon faced. I think we've got to be honest. It is getting harder, isn't it? There is a growing cynicism and even antagonism to the gospel. People are constantly being pumped through the media about this, this image of Christians being extreme, way out, dangerous. And, and it influences people's thinking. And, and, and their first impression of us might not be actually that favourable. I remember taking a mission of students. We went out on the doors in the most residence. We prayed beforehand that we all split up and went out on the doors. Inviting students onto the mission. We came back with the brief and a prayer time. And uh, there was a girl who in fact was the president of the Christian And when I asked her what the problem is, she said, students are just so and then she had slammed on us a few times. And actually, to be honest, sometimes that kind of response is worse than a sort of aggressive one, isn't it? Really hard when people just turn their back slam the door. They don't want to know. Now, we've got to be honest about it. We? We're going to face that. We really are. If we're not ready for it, then we're going to give up, aren't we? Now, it's exactly what the early church faced. And yet, they weren't intimidated into silence, were they? They weren't. They carried on preaching. I know uh, this year, I was times down in the open air there. Uh, it, it's getting harder. I think part of it, in fact, a lot of it's the seagulls. Something kamikaze mental seagulls. I don't know what's going wrong with them, but they're attacking people and robbing them of their chips. And it's all dang a seagull. And, um, and then one poor girl got bombed halfway through the open air uh, by, by a seagull. And, uh, and then you do get the sort of one or two about a little bit too much to drink at the back and there's something here and you get the odd sort of comment and, and it's not easy but then I was reading this book by great evangelism. You don't read any church history. Yes, so it's brilliant. Not the heavy stuff but this, this book is a fantastic book. And listen to this. It's describing the work of, of the Methodists in the 18th century and uh, John Wesley in particular. This is what it says about their open airs. It says they were denounced as disturbers of the peace, blind religious enthusiasts. Methodist evangelists, and Wesley in particular, faced violence day in, day out. Sometimes rocks were hurled. Profanity shouted. Mob frenzy would result. Drummers marched through their audiences. Cattle were driven into the crowds. And once a harlequin climbed a pole in Moorfields while Whitfield preached and sought to distract the crowd. As I was reading, I was thinking, well, maybe in the old sea, it's not too bad. Uh, I've never had a Harley Quinn trying to pull in my own air. But anyway, there we are. And it said, um, uh, as a result, you know, there's all kinds of threats made upon them. And uh, it says, Wesley, more than once, narrowly escaped serious harm. Several times, an angry mob threatened him. <laughs> you read things like, it was actually, we're not that badly off, are we? It's not that. And it's always been like this whenever the gospel has been preached. 
So, let's look at these unstoppable messages here in Acts chapter 4. Let's ask what the secret of their boldness was and see what we can learn. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, what the secret of their boldness was. What it was. And it's important. I want to say, first of all, it wasn't just that they were natural, spiritual supermen. You know, they were just naturally courageous and bold. It's easy to think like that, isn't it? I mean, here you've got Peter and John and the other apostles. It's easy for them, wasn't it? You know, it just came naturally. You know, it's not coincidental, is it, that the man, Peter, who is preaching here before the Sabbath, is the same one who, in a very similar kind of situation, seven weeks earlier, totally blinded. Remember Peter? Following Christ in the distance, when he was arrested, they reached the high priest's house, Peter waits outside, and actually on this occasion, it was just a little servant girl challenged him and said, weren't you one of the disciples? Aren't you with that lot? What did Peter do three times in the night before, the third time in the Peter wasn't just naturally bold, was he? Actually, Peter could be a coward like the rest of us. And Peter blew it big time. So it wasn't just that he came easy to They were like us in many, many ways. And the second thing I want you to notice, it wasn't just that they were sort of naturally quick or intelligent. You know, they've got it all up here. They had the the answers. They were able to memorize it all. And and they were just, you know, clever. Notice again what it says about these disciples. disciples. Verse 13, Acts chapter 4. It says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note of these men who'd been with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Most people, in fact, everybody, I'm sure everybody in this room has had more education than Peter and John did. They were just fishermen. Hardly any education at all. And they were ordinary. They weren't special cases amongst them. Very high of those of you. Do you feel ordinary tonight? I feel very ordinary. Especially when I get up on the box to preach or I'm trying to witness to someone. And I can think of dozens of people who can do it better than me. But listen, if you feel ordinary like that, be encouraged. Because that's what the disciples were like. They were like us. So what was the secret of all? There's two things I want to say. First is this. I want to suggest the first secret of their boldness was that they had a deep confidence in God. See, look at verse 8. You got it? Verse 8. What does it say there? Don't miss the significance of this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. I mean, we miss that out of What were we told? filled with God. Let's not get all mystical about this Holy Spirit business. Like people do, don't they? It's always a feeling, you know, tingling on the back of the neck. Is it some special shout that I've got to have from God? The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. What are we told here? Peter was empowered, enabled by God to do what he did. Is that simple, isn't it? What transformed Peter from being the coward who denied his Lord to being this courageous witness for his Lord was that he was relying upon God. He was enabled by God. In fact, 
It was nothing to do with the boy's abilities. It was everything to do with the God that was with him and in him and used him. Now listen, I want to suggest if we are going to be all witnesses by faith, we need to have that same conviction, that same confidence. God is in us as a You're a believer, the Bible says. You are indwelled by God. And the Bible says every Christian can experience this tremendous privilege of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says be being filled. It's not a one-off, is it? It's a continuous process. And actually, every day of our Christian lives, we need to experience something that fresh enabling and help and empowerment from God. And we can. Fantastic. Think of that. The God of all the universe lives in you. And actually, he wants to give you more of himself. More and more. He'll do you for himself. Why do you keep talking about being filled with the Spirit? He gave a very simple answer. He said, because I am God. <laughs> That's a good answer. Actually, day by day, we need to be renewed, don't we? We need to walk with God and experience his presence and his power. And when we do, when we're living in that daily experience, then we will know something perhaps the all that these disciples I wonder if you pray yourself that you would be filled with the Spirit. That's a godly biblical principle. You pray before you go out on the beach or into the open air or even starting a day in college or school or work. When the Spirit comes, the witnesses go in power, don't they? That's the whole secret of the book of Acts. Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And look at this chapter. What's it say? It says here, right there at the end, the passage that we read, verse 31, got it? After this fantastic prayer meeting that they have when Paul, uh, when, sorry, uh, Peter and John released. Look at what it says, verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God all day. That was the secret. That was their key. They had their eyes fixed upon a big God. A great God. Look at the way they pray. It's fantastic, isn't it? Verse 23. Peter and John are released. They return to the believers. On their release, they have this prayer meeting. And look at how they pray. Verse 24. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is not some weak, feeble, nervous God who's up in heaven chewing his nails and wondering how things are all going to work out and whether you know, the church actually will survive and grow and, and whether you know, mission will be successful. It's not, is it? Their conviction was in a mighty, powerful, sovereign God. Oh, they were very aware of their weaknesses. We need that perspective. Not a cocksure self confidence, but a very humble and a very brief confidence. Isn't that what we need? We need to have this view of the bigness of God. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel that I've almost got to 
seek permission to share the gospel. And if you ever hear people saying this, well, we need to earn the right to speak. Now, I think I know what they're saying. And there is a sense in which we've got to win people's ears. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that we're all aggressive. We've got to bash people over the head with our wide margin Bibles. I'm not saying that at all. But I think the danger with overemphasizing that side of things is that actually we can start to believe that somehow, you know, we don't really have the right to tell the gospel to people. To not just anyone. And that we're kind of intruding upon their space. And do you know what I want to say to you today? You never, ever, ever have to earn the right to speak. You have a God-given right to speak. And never think that you're intruding on their territory. They're on God's earth, aren't they? The very air that fills their lungs, that sustains their life, is God's air. In fact, they are God's because they're His creation. You are never, ever on enemy territory in that sense. It's God's work. You have a right to do God's work in God's work. In fact, I know that's what the world wants us to do. But we mustn't. I have a friend who wants to put these people and he asks them sometimes if they're a Christian. <laughs> when he's being a bit cheeky and a bit provocative, he'll say, Oh, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> now you've got to be careful you say that too, I know. But, but actually, you know, he sometimes he's even good one. Because they expect us to be sorry for being Christians, don't they? They expect us to apologise for raising the subject. You don't have to do that. You've already done This is God's work. And we're doing His work. Because of it, we do have the right to speak. Now, as I said, don't misunderstand me. We need to build friendships. We need to build friendships. We need to win people's ears. But nevertheless, we have that authority. It's God-given. Let's have our confidence in God, shall we? We need that. Second thing I want to say, the secret of that confidence not just a confidence in God, but a confidence in the gospel. The message that God has given was really the secret of their confidence, wasn't it? I want you to notice, as Peter preaches here to the Sanhedrin, how Christ-centered the message is. Because it comes out very powerfully, doesn't it? Look at verse 7. The, 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 the high priest and the Sanhedrin, they ask, by what power or what name do you do this? That's preaching. And they say, well, verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Notice, it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's not just Jesus of Nazareth. It's Jesus Christ. He's the king, the anointed one. And they go on to explain, don't they? Look, you may have dismissed him. I mean, you nailed him to a cross and, and you thought he was worthless. You know, they, you thought he was the brick that was misshapen got chucked on the scrappy. But we want to tell you that Jesus is the most important brick in the building. He's the chief cornerstone. He is Lord and God. And they preach Jesus, don't they? And I want you to notice what they say about the message of the gospel as well. What do they say? They say to them, look, don't you understand? This message is absolutely essential. We must believe in this message if we're going to be saved. And so they say, don't they, there is no other name given amongst men under heaven whereby which people 
must be saved. This is the only way that people are going to be rescued. It's through the gospel and the gospel alone that people get saved. And therefore, if this message is absolutely true, Jesus is Lord and Christ. He's been raised to life from the dead to prove it. It's a fact of history. And his death and resurrection are the only way for people to be rescued from a lostness, from hell itself. There's no other way. It's not other religions. There aren't many ways to God. There's only one. They must come through Christ. Therefore, they say, don't they? Verse 20, we cannot help speaking about him. We can't keep quiet. If it's really true, and if he's the only way, then how can we keep quiet about this? It's a good point, actually, isn't it? How can we keep quiet about it? He is the only way, isn't he? My family and friends are only going to get saved through Jesus. Your neighbours are going to go to hell without Christ. Those sincere, respectable, religious people will be in hell without Jesus. There's no other way. Those people on the beach, those children... They're going to go to hell without Christ. Those teenagers, they're going to go to hell without Jesus. Those parents, they're so friendly and nice and warm. And yeah, we enjoy all that. But let's remember, they're going to hell without Christ. Unless they trust in Christ, they're lost forever. Therefore, we can't help but speak, can we? Really? Well, that was the logic of the disciples. Mercedes-Benz ran a TV commercial. And in it, they were uh, showing a Mercedes-Benz car crashing into a concrete wall in one of these uh, safety tests. And uh, you watch this Mercedes-Benz crash into the wall and it all sort of crumples. And then one of their representatives comes on and says, um, in fact, he's interviewed by by someone. And this uh, representative says, uh, is asked rather, why Mercedes-Benz haven't enforced their patent on the Mercedes-Benz energy-absorbing body? Apparently they designed this, this bodywork and this way of absorbing energy in crashes, but they never enforced the patent, the patent, so it was copied by others. And very matter-of-factly and perhaps a bit smugly, the uh, representative of Mercedes-Benz says, well, because some things in life are too important not to share. You think about that. Isn't that true of the Gospel? Some things in life are too important not to share. That was the logic of the disciples. Is it ours? Do we say, I have got this message. It's the only message that will save. How can I keep quiet about it? But I want you to notice as well, that confidence was in the gospel, not simply because it was true, and it was the only way that people could be saved, but also because it was powerful and life-changing. And that comes out so well in this passage. In fact, the whole book of Acts, you could argue, is is teaching this truth. The power of the gospel, the power of the word of God. So so just look, will you, at at chapter 4. And look at verse 3. And look at what it says there. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But then it says, verse 4, Luke adds immediately, But many who heard the message believed. And the number of men grew to about 5,000. You see, Luke does that deliberately. He's saying, you can lock up Peter and John, you can lock up the apostles, but you can't lock up the gospel. And the gospel will go on doing its powerful work. And you might put them in prison, 
But just outside the prison, there's thousands of people getting saved. Because God's word will go on doing its work. And I tell you folks, sometimes the thing that encourages me most is that the power is in the message and not the messenger. It's not about my abilities to be clever and persuasive. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the word of God. And that has the power to change people's lives. Do you really believe that? Just follow it through Acts for a few, few minutes with me as we close. Acts 6 verse 7. If you've got a Bible, turn to it. If not, just listen. There's a phrase that comes again and again. As I say, it's right through the whole book of Acts. You could argue it's, it's, it's one of the themes of the book, certainly. 6 verse 7, it says this. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's that little phrase that comes again and again. The word of God spread. And look what happens. The priests get converted. Boy, you'd think they'd be the hard nuts to crack, wouldn't you? The priests are getting saved. wonder who you think is the hardest nut to crack in your school, in your college, in your community. Listen, no matter how hard they may be, however unlikely you might think it is that they might be converted, God's word is more powerful, isn't it? The gospel can do it. Have confidence in it. It's not a weak little message that we've got to prop up. And make God stand up. Not at all. This is the word of God and it will do its powerful work. Turn to Acts 12, verse 24. We get the same phrase again in a different context. 12, 24, it says, But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Turn back to verse 23. And you look at the context. It says there, Herod, now Herod, King Herod, was one of the great opponents of the gospel. King Herod had had James, the brother of John, put to death. Just at the beginning of chapter 12. But verse 23, it says this, Herod did not give praise to God. An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms. And then it says, but the word of God continued. What's the point there? The point there is this. The opponent of the gospel is silenced. But the gospel goes on doing its work. Isn't that encouraging? See, one day Richard Dawkins will be silenced. I know he's a great opponent of the gospel. He delights, doesn't he, in in belittling the gospel and and attacking Christians. But one day Richard Dawkins will be gone. Now, I pray that he'll get saved before that. And we should all pray that. But either way, one day, his voice will be silenced, won't it? The BBC. Now, I think, increasingly, of an agenda to oppose the gospel. They are so anti the gospel. Amazing. What was it? 40,000 people wrote in to complain about Jerry Springer the opera and they ignored every single one of those letters. Incredible, isn't it? But one day, BBC, ITV, they'll all be silenced. But not God's word. It will go on. It will go on doing its work. Therefore, have confidence in that message. And then look at one... Uh, last one in uh, well perhaps we'll leave it for time but you could look at it in Acts uh, chapter 19 where it talks about those that were converted in Ephesus and many of them were converted from an occultic background look as I finish as I conclude preaching the gospel is tough it's hard anyone who tells you different is fooling you they're lying it's not easy you are going to face opposition and I tell you this it gets harder as the years go by not easier and I, get, I guarantee that many of you, and perhaps some of you going through this, will think twice about filling in that application form. 
And you'll wonder, well, do I really have to do this? You know, can't I just duck it and go on holiday? It's too hard. Maybe I'll go on, a, on, 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 a, on a, some other activity. I've thought those thoughts. I've done my bit, you know? I've faced the difficulties and opposition. I've done my bit. Very tempting to give up, isn't it? Or maybe in your own church or youth group. Perhaps there is the open air or the door-to-door, whatever it may be. Or just speaking to your friends at college, at school. Very easy to duck out, isn't it? Very easy. But I want to challenge you tonight. Do you not believe that the great God that we worship and serve isn't worth it? Don't you believe that the gospel that we know to be the truth of God, that has saved us from hell itself, God's great work of salvation, don't you believe that in the light of all that God has done for us, that we should be sharing that message with others? Are you willing to pay the price? Because there will be a price. It's not easy. But it is worth it. Let me finish with this. In a Japanese seashore village, over a hundred years ago, there was an earthquake. It startled the villagers. It was one autumn afternoon. And, uh, well, they stopped what they were doing for a moment, but soon they returned to their normal activities because in that area of the world, earthquakes were common. And they got used to them. But high up on a a, a hill overlooking the coast, overlooking the village, was a farmer. And he was just gathering in his harvest of, of rice, the rice crop for the year. And as he looked out to see from his vantage point, he could see a long, thin, grey line on the horizon. And when he saw it, instantly he knew what it meant. He took a torch, a flaming torch, and he set light to his entire harvest crop that was freshly gathered. He set the whole thing ablaze. Within seconds, the flames were leaping up into the sky, the smoke billowing. And very quickly, the villagers came running up to the fields to see what was going on, to see if they could help. And when they reached the fields where the man was, he simply pointed back out to sea. As they turned to look, they saw a tsunami racing towards the coast and seconds later smashing into their village, destroying the whole thing. The farmer had sacrificed his rice crop, but he saved 400 lives. Let's remember what's at stake here. There is no other name under heaven, given to men, whereby people can be saved from an eternal hellfire. No other way. It's worth it, isn't it? It's worth it. It's got to be. How can we not help? How can we help but share that message? Because that's my spirit and your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your graciousness to us. Lord, like Peter, we want to confess before you tonight that many, many times we've blown it. Lord, I've kept quiet when I should have spoken. I've taken the coward's way out. And I know that, Lord. We pray, please, for your forgiveness for our cowardice. And we've sung already, defend us from cowardice and raise us from lethargy. Oh God, set us on fire with a love for the lost.
Oh God, help our confidence to be in you, not in ourselves. Lord, if we're doubting the gospel and its truth and relevance, restore our confidence in that message because we know it's uniquely able to save people. And it's powerful to do that work. Lord, may we go out in confidence in you, confidence in that gospel. And may we boldly share that message with lost men and women. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.